You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Venezia, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. At times, and tell me if this isn't true, it's hard to reconcile the things that are going on in our life's experience with a God who's supposed to supremely love us. Isn't that true? Sickness, the loss of a loved one, whatever, you fill in the blank. I mean, how do you reconcile those things? You see, just because of the fact that we're a child of God in Christ for what he's done for us, it doesn't mean that we're exempt from struggles, difficult times in our life's experience, you see. But we have this hope that God will use those things for our benefit. Nobody likes it when things don't go their way, right? In fact, sometimes it's even easy to try and blame God for the things that happen. In today's message, Pastor Mike reminds us that God uses the pain and struggles in our lives for our betterment. That doesn't mean he's sitting on a cloud, throwing little rocks of misfortune at you because you don't pray enough, but it means that throughout the pain in our lives, He is still with us. God wants to help us through it in order to bring us closer to Him. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 42 as he begins his message, Having a Pity Party. tell you something as a Christian you know what we have no place or we shouldn't give place to having a pity party there's no reason whatsoever to have a pity party or to feel sorry for ourselves or to complain about what God is doing and continuing to do within our lives all right so Genesis chapter 42 beginning in verse 36 and again this is where we left off last time and Jacob their father said to them that is the sons of Jacob You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. At least that's what he thought. They thought, he thought that Joseph had uh, died. Simeon is no more. Well, I'll explain all this to you in a moment. And you want to take Benjamin, the youngest of the sons of Jacob. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, one of the other brothers, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. That is Benjamin. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, Joseph, or at least that's what he thought again, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Having a pity party. Okay, so let me set this up for you. Here in our text, Jacob is feeling sorry for himself, as his sons have just returned 
from Egypt. Now, if you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks, you might be thinking, well, what, you know, what's going on here? Well, remember, there was a grievous famine in the land, and that caused Jacob to send his sons down to Egypt to buy food that they might be sustained during the time of famine. Okay, so that's why they've gone down to Egypt. But now they've come back. The prime minister, who happens to be Joseph, whom Jacob thought had expired, right? And, uh, but was actually betrayed by his brothers, uh, thrown into a pit initially, and then sold into slavery. Remember the caravan of the Midianites who were traveling down to Egypt to uh, trade their wares. And so they took Joseph along with them. Joseph is placed on the slave block and is bought by a fellow whose name is Potiphar. And we talked about the unusual circumstances, Potiphar's wife and the designs that she had upon Joseph. And uh, Joseph is, uh, is uh, um, uh, mistreated and, and accused of raping Potiphar's wife, which leads to him being thrown into prison and, and uh, just an unusual series of circumstances. While he's in prison, he interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the butler. And later on, Pharaoh has a dream himself. It's extremely troubling, and uh, he calls for his soothsayers and uh, his astrologers and, and all of those fellows, the diviners, and, and uh, that were what he thought would have been uh, able to interpret those dreams, but they came up empty. And then uh, one of the fellows who Joseph interpreted the dream while they were both in prison is reminded of Joseph's capacities and ability to interpret dreams. And so Joseph is summoned for by Pharaoh. He interprets the dream. The dream uh, basically uh, was that there would be a two periods of seven years. The first uh, period of seven years would be a time of plenty, followed by another period of seven years of famine. And so Joseph counseled Pharaoh during the time of the seven years of plenty to store up their houses with food so that they might be able to be sustained during the seven years which were to follow of famine. And the seven years of famine was widespread across all of the earth. And so it created a situation where all races and nations came down to Egypt to buy food because they only had uh, food uh, to sustain them during the seven years of famine. Now, because of Joseph's capacities and abilities, and because of the fact that God's hand and favor was upon him, Joseph is elevated to second only to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at that particular time. So, the brothers go down to Egypt to buy the food. They visit with the prime minister, who is Joseph, who has disguised himself. He knows who the brothers are. These are the same brothers who portrayed him some 17 years ago, threw him into the pit, sold him into slavery, right? So Joseph disguises himself. He's put on all of the Egyptian garments. He's speaking now to his brothers through an interpreter, and he begins to deal extremely harshly with his brothers, accusing them of being spies. And by the way, if you, if you haven't been around for the last couple of weeks, you can catch up on all the previous messages on our website where those previous messages are archived, as Pastor Jose had, had mentioned just a little while ago. 
And, you know, all of these things are by design. The way that Joseph was treating his brothers were by God's design. They weren't done arbitrarily. Remember, Joseph is absolutely under the control of God. Joseph is God's man. Now, this was very important to bring around the ten sons of Jacob. Now, why was that? Remember, these were men who were extremely undisciplined. They were men of the world, very worldly. They were vicious. Remember, during the time in which uh, their sister, Dinah, had been raped by a fellow whose name was Shechem. And uh, the brothers took out revenge on the Shechemites, and they killed each last and every one of the adult males. So these guys were very vicious, and they weren't anything that even resembled being godly men. Now, who were these guys? Well, think about it. These were eventually to become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? The nation of Israel, through which one day the Messiah would come. So it was very important to God to bring these guys around, to bring them to a place of repentance, you see. And so he's using Joseph as his instrument to that end. How did he do it? Well, he uses circumstances. In one of our previous messages, we talked about the circumstances that go on within our lives so that God might get our attention, bring us around, help us to become the kind of men and women that God wants us to become. Uh, For them, it was the famine in the land. The last thing that they wanted to do was go down to Egypt. Why was that? Because their brother Joseph had been sold by them into slavery and brought down to Egypt. We talked about the conscience that God places within each and every one of us innately and how that God uses that, you know, to to convict us of our sin, to bring us around. Then he used the harsh words that Joseph spoke to his brothers as he disguised himself. They didn't have, they had no clue whatsoever that that was Joseph that they were standing before. That's now accusing them of being spies. Ultimately, they were thrown into prison for a period of time, right? So God's working a work in these guys' lives. He's dealing harshly with them through Joseph, accusing them of being spies. So remember, God is using these things to bring them to the place of repentance. Now, we talked about this last time. Simeon, one of the ten brothers, has been placed in prison, verse 24 of this chapter, until they return with their youngest brother. Remember, Joseph says, okay, I want to verify the fact that you're not spies, and uh, you just mentioned that your brother is back home uh, in Canaan, in the land of Canaan, with your dad, Jacob. Okay, so what you need to do is send one of your brothers back to Canaan and bring your youngest brother, Benjamin, back down to verify your story so that I'll know that you're not spies. And so anyway, Simeon has been placed in prison now, verse 24, until they return with their youngest brother, Benjamin, to verify their story, to prove that, in fact, they were honest men. And so when the brothers rehearsed, so now they're gone back to the land of Canaan, they're standing before Jacob. I've got a long way to set this up. So when the brothers rehearsed, what had gone on while they were down in Egypt, standing before the prime minister, who they didn't realize was their brother Joseph, who they had betrayed 17 years ago into slavery, Jacob begins to complain about the turn of events. Let's go back to our text. Notice in verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me or grieved me. Joseph is no more, 
At least that's what he thought. Simeon is no more. He's being held in prison down in Egypt. And you want to take Benjamin, my youngest. And this was the uh, bottom line here. This is the words that we want to focus in on. And he declares, all these things are against me. You know, are you familiar with the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so? Well, if Jacob had his way, he turned that chorus into, no one loves me, this I know, because my misfortunes tell me so. How many times have we sang that chorus? It's a matter of perspective and focus. You know, how many times have we considered the things that are going on in our life's experience and have come to the wrong conclusion? All these things are against me. You know, I thought it paid great dividends in being a child of God and making that commitment to Christ and being born again of the Spirit of God. But I guess that I was wrong. And you know what? God understands that. You know, it's at that point where God would have been just and right to just blow us off and say, oh, really? Yeah, all these things are against you. Well, forget you. But God is so faithful, right? And so forgiving and so patient and long-suffering with us. Isn't that the truth? But, I, but you know, he under, because he understands what's going on in our heart. At times, and tell me if this isn't true, it's hard to reconcile the things that are going on in our life's experience with a God who's supposed to supremely love us. Isn't that true? Sickness, the loss of a loved one, whatever, you fill in the blank. I mean, how do you reconcile those things? You see, just because of the fact that we're a child of God in Christ for what he's done for us, it doesn't mean that we're exempt from struggled, difficult times in our life's experience, you see. But we have this hope that God will use those things for our benefit because the Bible does tell us that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. But we've all been there at one time or another. The best of Christians have. Listen, I mean, think about it. This is Jacob. I mean, come on. The father of the 12 tribes of Israel a man of God, someone who is so profoundly used of God. I'm going to give you a couple of other cross-references of other biblical characters who were profoundly used by God who also had these times of having a pity party. I think that we can all relate to Jacob's experience because we often feel like him. Things aren't going well, aren't going the way that we hoped they would go. And so we begin to complain. We begin to murmur. Everything is against us. And we get into that mindset. We get into that funk. Nothing has ever gone right for me in our entire lives. And then we begin to pout. We absolutely forget that now we've been saved. We've secured our eternal destiny. We're going to live with God forever. In comparison, the time that we spend upon the earth on a graph is so minute in relationship to eternity. It's like a speck, you know, on the graph, if you think about it. But we lose our perspective. Isn't that true? So listen, first of all, let me also mention, this is not a good witness for God. When we go around moaning and groaning and complaining, and I mean, what would unbelievers think about the God whom we know, the God whom we serve, or think about this, the God that we're encouraging them to know. You know, how are they going to respond to that? 
man, you know, is that the kind of a life that you live? You're always walking around in a tizzy and confused and you're always complaining and you're telling me that I need that God that you know and serve in my life? What a poor testimony uh, that is, walking around, complaining, and murmuring. Okay, so Jacob certainly is not being used here as a good example as a believer. Don't, folks, don't be like him. Don't say everything is against me. But also, let me balance this out by saying, you know, he wasn't entirely wrong uh, in recognizing that in a sinful world, there are some things that are against God's people. And although things are controlled by God, you've often heard me mention this, we give our lives to Christ, we ask him as a part of that process to come and take control over our lives. Make no mistake about that. He does exactly that. We say, Lord Jesus, come, be the Lord and Savior of my life. Control my life. Lead me, Lord, in the way everlasting. And make no mistake about that. When we pray that prayer, if that's our heart's desire, he will come. I don't know why he would want to take control of my life. I've made such a mess of it in the past. But in fact, he does. He loves you that much. So there's nothing that he allows or doesn't allow to come into your life except for a purpose. It's a part of his plan. It's a part of his design. As I mentioned before, it's all for good. So... Although things are controlled by God and used for our benefit, there are enemies in our life's experience that are seeking to bring us down, who would cause us to struggle. The Bible tells us that there are at least three. What are the three? Well, it's the big three, if you will. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And isn't it interesting that the Bible, particularly the New Testament, addresses itself to those three enemies of the people of God, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's consider each one of them in that order. First of all, we have the world. Now, what am I referring to? Well, I'm talking about the world system. And Jesus referred to it in John's Gospel in chapter 15, in verse 19. If you were of the world, now he's speaking to his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So don't think that the world is going to line up and pat you on the back and tell you what a great person you are for your commitment to Christ or for you following the Lord. The world operates according to its own goals and values rather than God's goals and values. And that's exactly why Paul, in his epistle to the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 12, in verse 2, exhorts us, be ye not conformed to this world, but rather be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so the first great enemy that we face as a child of God is the world. And then secondly, it's our flesh, that which we carry about in ourselves. And there's this war ever going on inside the believer, the flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. So the flesh and that which we carry about in ourselves, that earthly nature of man apart from divine influence, that nature of man that is disposed to sin 
and rebellion against God. And that not that exactly why we need to be born again of the Spirit of God? You see, we need a new nature. Paul speaks of the sinful nature in the book of Galatians in chapter 5, and he gives us this catalog of the different sins that uh, someone who lives after the flesh would be guilty of. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, so sexual sins, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. And by the way, that word sorcery is the Greek word pharmakia, and it's a reference to drug use. So anyone who participates in drug use, whether it's legal, okay, where if it alters your conscience whatsoever, it opens yourself up to another realm, another dimension, a demonic dimension. I'll go as far as even mentioning that. Even though marijuana is legal, folks, if you participate in smoking grass, which most of us have in the past, right? Okay? You're guilty of this sin. You're guilty of sorcery, pharmakia, the use of drugs. He goes on, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and of the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past. So this isn't something new that Paul was just, you know, uh, laying on them for the first time. That those, take note of this, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So don't expect to. So that's those individuals who are governed by a nature that is opposed to God the fleshly man, the fleshly woman. So that, that's the second powerful enemy that we have to deal with as a child of God. Thirdly, we're talking about the devil. Remember, the world, the flesh, the devil. Now, the devil is the tempter, the accuser of the brethren, who is continually, actively opposing God's people. Wherever he can find an inroads, man, he's there, right? If you shut the... If you shut the front door, he'll look in to come into the back door through a, a window that you've left open, whatever. You let your guard down, man, and he'll come and get you, right? And listen, you know, we're, we're not, you know, we're not like, we don't give credence to the, the devil can't be everywhere at one time. He's not omnipresent. He doesn't possess the same qualities as God do. So we're not attributing all of the things that we have to deal with that oppose us, that's antagonistic towards our Christianity, as being of the devil. The devil made me do it. The devil's lurking around every corner. You know, some Christians would have you to believe that, but that's not the case. The greatest enemy that you face is yourself. God has given us ample abilities and resources and capacities to be able to overcome the devil, our formidable enemy, right? Those are the three big enemies that we face. In my father's house There's a place for me In my father's house Where I long to be Oh my heart. Here at In My Father's House, we're going through the book of Genesis where the story of the beginning is told. God made light and said that it's good. God made plants and trees and said that it's good. 
God made animals on land and in the sea, and he said that it's good. And then God made man, and he said that it is very good. Creation didn't stop at the end of the sixth day. Creating is an inherent part of who God is and what he does. Look around you. What do you see? New plants, new trees, new animals, each one unique in how it grows. And God is still saying it is good. God is in the business of creating new people out of old ones, undoing the inherent brokenness. When you were born again, a new creation, God looked at you and said that you are very good. He has made you new and restored you to the place you were designed to fill. You've been listening to In My Father's House with Pastor Mike Venizio. This is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. We'd love to see you here. You can find all the information you need, including service times, on our website, harvestnyc.org. That's harvestnyc.org. If you're listening outside of Manhattan, we'd love to know that, too. Please send us a quick note at harvestnyc at verizon.net. That's harvestnyc at verizon.net. It's a great encouragement to Pastor Mike and the team at In My Father's House to hear where these messages are being listened to. We hope you'll come back and see us again, because there's no better place to be than in my father's house.